You need to be more like a dog. We don't need a bunch of cats in here. Yeah, looking in the mirror. Be a dog. Whatever happens in leash, it's always a scandal. Why do you think that was? Probably because we're always drinking. And <laughs> <laughs> There's no smoke without fire. That goes light. I met Tomas O'Shea one day and he said, I'm sick of that northern crowd. He said, if they went set dancing twice a week, we'd all be set dancing twice a week. I can remember a lad, Jay Booth, right? And he was getting sick, right lying like that, <laughs> looking at me like, and I'm going, this is not helping me. Every man, woman and monkey in me all is, is nearly writing them off. Shaking the bucket! That's it! All right, you're very welcome along to our panel this Saturday afternoon. Up for discussion this week, the reaction to the Alex Ferguson retirement announcement. Good advice, and what's the very best way of dealing with hostile crowds? Joining us on the panel this afternoon, Mike McGurn, a strength and conditioning expert who's worked with Ireland, Armagh, Bernard Dunn, and many more. Charlotte Regan is a comedian and a regular here on our Saturday panels. And Dennis Hickey is a former Ireland Leinster and Lions winger who this week was inducted into the Irupa Hall of Fame. Dennis, the Hall of Famer in your, in your 30s, that's nice. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, well, because Irupa, I think, is pretty... Arupa's a pretty young organisation so it only starts you can only be in the Hall of Fame if, after being a professional player so there's no, no no room for the likes of Willie John or any of those real Hall of Famers you know? yeah okay um, and when you get a call like that is it like hmm I'm not quite that old or do you kind of think <laughs> well I am in rugby terms I am actually that old so yeah, yeah I'm afraid yeah that's not, uh, it's not age related it's when you finish so uh, five years finished six years now so. it is nice to be recognised though by your and fellow it's pros. always nice to be, especially by your pros yeah by, by, by fellow players and um, uh, and an organisation that represents players so yeah, yeah no, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a great it's a great honour ok Mike haven't seen you in a while what are you up to these days uh, doing a bit of work up in Queen's University, which is great. It's close to home, uh, working with the student teams, uh, rowing, rugby, uh, Gaelic, all that sort of stuff, very good. And doing a bit of work too with Lyle's senior team. Okay. So, when you're working with um, a group of rowers and the Gaelic football team, are the core principles all exactly the same or is there much difference between what the work they need to do? Not, not really. I mean, at the end of the day, most sports you're looking to develop speed and power. And so the sort of, I do a lot of Olympic lifts with, with my athletes. Uh, so you try and get them to teach them how to clean, how to snatch correctly, and then convert that into their own particular performances. So you'll do some stuff that's, I suppose, uh, sports specific, but by and large, it's pretty much the same. That's the free weights? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And the benefits of that is that you kind of learn explosiveness or you, you're, you train for explosive kind of... Yeah, I think most sports, other than cross-country running, you've got to be explosive and, and speed's always the king. So if you can make your athletes more powerful and hence more quicker, then you're, you're, you've got a, a good job done, you know? Right. I love the actions you did there, Jer. Oh, yeah. The free rates. <laughs> yeah. That's good. I didn't get them off yeah. my head. Yeah. <laughs> Charlotte, welcome home. Thank you. You're a returning immigrant, well, for a short visit, I think. Yeah, I came back for uh, gigs in the Laughter Lounge this weekend and all around Dublin next week, but also for a communion, which I was telling the lads is probably the most Irish reason that anybody's ever come back to Ireland for communion next weekend. And how's London treating you? Great, yeah, yeah. It's just... Um, I guess it's just a bigger place, isn't it? <laughs> a lot more work available. So, you know, it's, it's... But I've been coming back and forth to England for two years now, so it's it's uh, it's been a slow move, but we're there now with the family. Everything's yeah. good. And does it change your perspective coming home to Ireland about uh, what state the place is in? Kind of when you get out of it? Um, I don't... I don't probably haven't had that yet in, in that... Yeah, I think we're pretty sensitive as well about, you know, people coming back and going and think they know have yeah. have all the answers now. Um I mean, one thing's for sure, we're we're not to blame for what happened. And I think you get that feeling when you get off the plane that there's a sense of you know, people are still shaking their heads, going, you know, what did we do yeah. to, to deserve this? But in England, I think there's a bit, there's a bit more, a bit, a bit more kind of pretending like it's better than it is. There's a bit more stiff upper lip going on there, yeah. despite the situation. 
I don't know which I'd prefer to be honest but I'm interested to get your perspective on the Alex Ferguson story you were probably back in Ireland for when the story broke so were you watching the coverage here? I, I was over there when it when it broke and I've always and I know that this is uh, probably controversial but I've always thought that Alex Ferguson is the luckiest manager in the history of the Premiership I mean let's consider first of all his two European Cup wins two jammy last minute goals win him his first one then John Terry slips on the penalty spot handing them their second one how many games did they win tight games won but a few extra minutes being added and a late goal going in this man has an obscene amount of luck I cannot stand his approach to players to his ignorance and kind of brutish mentality like uh, diplomat is not a word that you connect to Alex Ferguson and also I'm a Liverpool fan so this is the best news that's ever come in for me that might explain your, your selection bias <laughs> and the details of, of what you've been thinking about yeah. this week uh, did you watch any of the Alex Ferguson coverage Dennis were you kind of interested in it a bit of it yeah it was you know whether it was interested or not it was everywhere uh, so you know there was, it, was, it was all encompassing uh, you know it was I think it's inevitable um, especially obviously in some of the media uh, um, outlets which have a duty to promote the Premiership. Um, it was obviously going to be on twenty four newsfeed. Yeah. Um, but I think you know there's a lot there's a there's a lot uh, you know contrary to, to what Charlie think there's a lot more uh, um, people uh, there's people who've got a lot more air, time in the airways who have achieved far less than he has from in the sporting context. Um, I think he's been in, you know, anyone who can survive in a professional sporting job for 26 Six, years, yeah. you know, it's pretty incredible. Uh, like, there's a guy who coaches in Toulouse called Guy Noves. Uh, he's been there maybe 15 or 16 years, and that's seen as incredible. Mm. So, so to be doubling that uh, in the environment that he's in. And, you know, I remember when he took over, actually, in United, um, you know, I think he took over from Ron Atkinson. Yeah. And uh, he had to build a team or rebuild the team and get them to where they were. And what's always struck me about him is is, 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 is probably the same thing that Jarrett despises because it manifests itself uh, in the way he acts, but is his competitiveness. He's just obsessed with winning and obsessed with the club being the best club. Um, and you need that sort of obsession, you need that sort of chip in your shoulder to, to you know, he, he always has a bogeyman to beat. He always has a team that he has to be better than. It was Liverpool for a long time, then somebody else come up and always wants to talk them down, Man City or whatever. You know, there's a few things he, you know, I think he could have done a little bit better. He could have used his power a little bit more mm. to do that he didn't do, but yeah, you can talk about that in a bit. Yeah. I think it's the stroppiness that I really hate. Is the, it's just such a cranky prick. I just don't like him. He's a real bad manner with people. The two things that surprised me, but the whole week was, number one, it made the headline news when there was three women locked up for 10 years in Columbus, Ohio, and it overrid that as, as the headlines. But the second thing was, nobody mentioned his bully boy tactics throughout his 26 mm, years yeah. like in essence Alex Ferguson was a bully and he paid a lot of people off but they, they tend to forget that there and it's all praising him and what a good manager and he was a good manager but he did a lot of things wrong too and we tend to forget that there and, and when you retire Did you think any of that came out this week? Was it dealt with? Uh, I mean we, we had the Beckham incident when he got hit with the boot and he was praising him you know but nobody really said look at I remember when he did A, B and C which he did do and like he was always bullying linesmen bullying referees you know Yeah we were kind of talking about this a little bit earlier in the office and just saying that uh, it was like he was dead that there was kind of yeah you can't speak ill of the man but actually he's just retired so, you know that there's a difference between so the people who retire and, and it, it's yeah, grand I think, that, like, yeah I think the point Mikey is right and that's I think the, the 
the bit I find was a little disappointing. He was so respected and so revered and so successful because there's one thing for a guy to be saying, oh, this is the way people should act or this is the way you know your team should act if you're not being successful. But being successful gives you a huge amount of power. Um, and, you know, you're right how he used to deal with the referees. If he used to do, if he would have dealt with the referees and linesmen a certain sort of way, that would have been the standard. Mm. And people would have said, well, Fergie doesn't need to shout and scream at linesmen. Mm. Um, and the other thing as well, I think he really had the chance to, to he could have really changed the way football, uh, football, you know, the diving culture in football. You know, there was the, you know that movie, um, A Few Good Men, you know, the premise of that movie is that these guys beat up, beat a guy to death and it basically tracks back to the fact that it could never have happened unless the top guy sanctioned it. And I always felt it was a little bit the same with diving. You know, I don't believe if Alex Ferguson had come in at the start of a season and said, right, anyone who's diving in our team is not going to picked. I don't care if you, you know, I don't care what it's going to cost us. It would have never have happened. And gradually, you know, that's that would have been the standard. Other teams would have followed. Kids would have talked about it. It would have been a real, would have been a, it would have been a completely new approach to, to, to how soccer players behave, the culture of, of, of that in, in, within the game. And, again, you know, little things like that, I suppose, he didn't use his power to the effect. And some of the guys who, who played in his team, Val Nistroy, all these guys, among the worst at the time in the game. And he never, ever criticised it, you know. And I know coaches... Because I know coaches have played under, they never criticise their players. Now they might do it behind closed doors, which I'm sure he was well capable of doing it. Mm. But publicly, they can't do it because you just you just can't do it. It's not it's not something that ha- it's not something that happens. But I just would have maybe he could have used his considerable power and influence to maybe change or do things about the game, which he didn't do. With his longevity, would he have the same success if he's at like a Reading or a West Ham? Like Jarvis said, he was lucky. He was lucky because he had good players as well. Mm. He had great players. Well, he picked good players only, and he put a system in place that produced good players. Mm. You know, they didn't fall out of the sky. A lot of the, the the bedrock of his team, the backbone of his team for a long time, uh, the gigs, skulls, um, the two Nevils, they all came from the youth system, Beckham, and he put that in place. So you know, he I think he he probably made more players than he. I I, I would always associate his reign with producing more players than buying than the than the ones he bought. The ones he bought were kind of top-ups to the ones he produced himself. Mm. And I think actually, ultimately that's why he was successful. Uh, Mike texted in and say Ferguson was an arrogant bully who has demeaned the title sir bestowed upon him. I don't know, do, do we really care in Ireland about the title sir? It's like, it was one of the features of the week. A lot of uh, people running around going Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, I don't know, I haven't heard anybody call Sir Bob Geldof Sir Bob or... Uh, uh, Reed Jarlett, to put it mildly, the man is ignorant of Alex Ferguson's true qualities well, and that, the merit of his achievements. Well, I, I've got to take issue with that because I think that that text is somebody who adheres to the Nike slogan of winning take care, takes care of everything. Because I'm not ignorant to this man's achievements. The first thing I said was the two European Cups. But, you know, there's, there's, there's other things. There's extra things in every sport that you deal with, in every career that you deal with. There's extra things that matter. But certainly, in the case of Ferguson none of the ignorance of that he held the brutish behaviour that he took part in mattered as long as he won isn't it far better that we actually deal with these issues about somebody like Ferguson and talk about his character in the whole as opposed to the single cardboard cutout of oh the man was a genius because I, I find it far more interesting to think of this person as a human and therefore somebody who can be emulated as opposed to actually uh, you know because no one can be a saint all their lives and, and also be a genius yeah like he's there's a lot more to Ferguson though as well about the soccer you know his, his, his he's quite a political guy involved in the unions when he was in Glasgow 
um, being the big supporter of the Labour Party, big family was, man, big family, family man, yeah. Family and he man. was he was very you know as a as a as a I think he was a shop steward actually in the union for a long time uh, when he was a kid. So he has a kind of a. Um, he has an unusual, I suppose, w- route that he ch- plotted to get into into soccer, but he has obviously that uh, you know he's that sort of personality trait that has taken him to to where to where he is, and, and I just don't think that um, I just don't think that he would have had the success that uh, he had. Uh, without you know the warts and all bit of you know I don't think you can pick and choose nice because he hasn't had that. Last. Well, it's not even nice guys finish finish last, but you know it's the the, the sum of the whole uh, is what got him there, and I don't think he would have got all the good parts of Ferguson without the bad bit. That's that's just the makeup of the I guy. I think you know? too though the signs were there with Ferguson early in the piece when he was with Aberdeen and he broke the Celtic Rangers mould. He's one of the first uh, managers to come along and uh, stop that dominance of Celtic yeah. Rangers in Scotland. So the signs were there he going to be successful. Mm. You know, and then he just followed on with Manu. Uh, Brian Leaksup says I'm stunned at the vitriol at Ferguson leaving every footballing fan has great respect for what he's done for the club as a Liverpool fan I respect what he'd won just as other clubs respect Liverpool's achievements there's a lot of respect going on well, in, you, uh, you have to respect what he's done from if, from the results point of view you have to do because you know the achievements are there and you know you can you know, maybe maybe uncharitably, Jordan, you could say he was lucky. You know, you got to get to the final. You got to get. You got to be in the game with thirty seconds left. You know, to to win the game. Um, and no, I don't think anyone wins a Huntington Cup or sorry, a, a European Cup um, with luck. You you know, luckily you need a bit of luck to win any tournament. But um, you know, his results speak for itself. But I think we're talking about more than just his results. Winning is everything. Coach kids, if you're looking to be a role model, well. I'm certainly not here from my balanced uh, view on anything. I think that yeah. I'm certainly, I'm certainly a part of a faction of people that is delighted to see Alex Ferguson go because it's probably the height of respect of Liverpool fans. Uh, many of us have thought, listen, we really don't stand much of a chance until this man leaves. Um, because he is the core pillar of what is an incredible institution which was nothing until he arrived like really nothing I remember being 12 years old when they won that first premiership and the idea of a dynasty and we're like that'll never happen Mm. it really did happen and we lived through one of the greatest dynasties in football history and who knows where it goes from here Uh, who was the most critical coach Dennis played under is one text critical coach yeah critical of players yeah I think all players are all coaches are are pretty critical about the team they play and players it doesn't really bother players you know I don't think players ever consider their coaches bullies um you know the sort of things that would go on if they were in any other workplace would be up before some sort of tribunal you yeah. know uh but I, I'm not sure p- any of the coaches I I would have played under would have been considered bullies guys like Michael Checker were particularly tough um just his demeanor was very uh, you know, very abrasive. Um, but but also, he was also the most. Uh, he was the guy who was publicly would defend his team more probably to, so than any uh, than any coach who played on. You see the interviews he used to do after any of the Rabo games. Just absolutely um, wouldn't take any sort of criticism uh, yeah. of the way the team played or the way he, the way his players performed but behind closed doors he's a very very tough guy to to to, to work for but they're all you know it's just agrees with Mikey like Mikey would have seen a lot of it uh, with the national coaches as well 
that you just it's a requirement of the job really you know you've obviously worked in a lot of different sports is there a, a significant difference in the approach does it depend on whether or not it's professional or amateur uh, I think in professional the coach has to be critical to a point I, I found the rugby league coach is very critical I work with a fellow at St Helens called Ian Mulward who was uh, an Australian a total megalomaniac and he was successful like he'd done the travel with them won the World Club Championship Challenge Cup Super League but uh, the way that he sort of treated the players was very similar to Ferguson it was a bully boy tactics I remember one time uh, we were playing Leeds in a match and our, our prop forward knocked on and he sent me on with a message to say tell Vila if he knocks on I'm taking the club car from so I ran on and I didn't give him the message I said listen <laughs> you're going well he said cheers cuz and when I got back off the pitch he said what did he say so he hasn't got a club car he went ah <laughs> so yeah, very very critical and, you know, very, a tough, tough cookie you know a good coach though gets a balance right because if you're just a bully all the time eventually the players will have enough of it and they'll, mm. you won't survive mm. you know you might survive a year or two but the players ultimately will make sure that you don't your contract isn't renewed and that players have, do have that power to a point you know the collectiveness of, of players and senior players can do that but you know every coach gets a good balance between being and, and to be fair you know guys who are 23 24 22 uh respond to that sort of um, not 24-7 but there's an element of that you actually need that within a team it's just a good coach to be able to get the balance between both because the 32 year old probably isn't going to respond to exactly the same thing and you can be sure by the way like Ferguson he might have seen like a bully externally but you know for a lot of the guys that came up through that system you're talking about a guy who they would have seen probably more than their own parents their own fathers you're talking like he's a guy who would be omnipresent in their life and like I do think for ten years, and you know, there's there's the father aspect to it that you know, and and the acts of kindness that would have happened that you just you'll never hear about. No one will ever hear about it. Yeah, and the way he treat uh, Ryan Giggs would be different the way he treat a young Johnny Evans. You know, the older you get, the less you you, you use the whip and you 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 pull back a wee bit because as players get older, they get more mature and, and they need less of a, of a cracking onto. I just have to tell everybody there's been a mini pitch invasion at uh, Aston Villa because uh, Bobby Tambling's record is no more. It's now in the hands of Frank Lampard. He scored with 88 minutes on the clock against Aston Villa to almost certain give Chelsea the three points this afternoon and confirm their place in the Champions League next season uh, and also then hurl Aston Villa right back into uh, the relegation mire because they're going to be playing Wigan next week if Wigan beat Arsenal on uh, Tuesday night then and also beat Villa next week then Villa will uh, be below Wigan in the table so 53106 is the text number here um, we have loads of text coming in about Ferguson I want to talk a bit more about some of the other stuff that um, has happened this week uh, it, this is kind of a roundabout way to get to the issue of temperament but um, Ian Poulter withdrew from Quail Hollow last week he tweeted about how crap the greens were and how he's going to have to change his schedule and then suddenly developed a, an issue which was unconnected to the the fact that the greens were basically you can't withdraw from a golf tournament if you don't like the course you show up and you don't like it you're not allowed they're, they're going to ban you from it so some cover story uh, exists where Ian Poulter wasn't just taking his ball home and uh, storming off but it did get us into the, the kind of notion that well if things aren't going right for you sometimes maybe discretion is the better part of valour and actually it's okay to go away like when Roy McIlroy pulled out um, that time from the Honda Classic he got a absolutely slaughtered for it and yet actually you know what uh, is it wrong sometimes just to to run away um, I don't know if the guys will probably uh, your answers in terms of sport would be a lot more relevant but from the perspective of my career and being on stage and knowing that you're dying on on your arse and working through it 
is oftentimes the place where really great things happen and the experience of going through real adversity live in your job is how true character gets built and I'm not saying that Roy McElroy or Ian Poulter are lacking in character who am I to say that sitting here but I, I find Ian Poulter's decision really flabbergasting considering what happened to McElroy. I mean, the I felt sorry for McElroy because, you know, as somebody who does a job where you've got to put on a smiley face and go on stage and make people laugh, people don't know what's going on in your life behind closed doors with your kid or what health issues might be happening, but you still got to do your job. Uh, I felt sorry for McElroy because who knows what's going on there? Who, who does know? You've, I'm sure you've played games where it's been like, I, the last thing I want to do right now is be on a rugby pitch. Mm. But Ian Poulter, I mean, with it's so fresh in the memory, it's crazy that he would do this. But I think too, in, in any other walk of life, and you sort of heard it earlier, like if you're a bank manager, school teacher, and things are going bad, you don't just walk out and say, oh, I've had enough. You know, there's all sorts of connotations with that there. And as you say, Josh, if things are going bad, it's a sign of real character if you can hang in there and work through it. <coughs> and if your first option every time to walk away and things aren't going well, though, and you, it gets easy to do it the second time, the third time, it's a bit like a runner on a track. If they drop out every time that the, the, the race gets tough, it becomes a mindset and they'll always drop about you know and you're, you're setting a very dangerous president there mm. yeah like, uh, it, it's you know to, to, to what Charlotte said it is hard to, to, to say exactly the reasons behind it. We, you know, we're not going to know the reasons the golf circuit appears to me just to be fairly relentless you know they just go from tournament to tournament to tournament and you know it's only them they're on their own all the time and uh and I don't mean socially, I just mean, you know, they're the people, they can't rely on anyone. Like, you, sometimes yeah. you go in a team sport, you can, you know, you might be be at your best mentally or physically, but the collective will, will pull you through. And it's, it's, it's pretty relentless to have to go out as a golfer, you know, all the time. And I just, you know, I just wonder, a guy like him, he's very experienced, he's very successful, he knows his body, he knows his mind, mm. uh, and he's saying, you know, he's saying, you know the rules saying they can't pull out. The only reason you can't pull out of a tournament like that, by the way, isn't for isn't for honor or isn't for character. It's because sponsors are paid a ton of money. Yeah. So this is not a you know this is not like one you know a mom and pop operation that have sold tickets and you know Ian Poulter's come and he's let us down. This yeah. is like a huge corporate event, yeah. and that's the only reason that rule exists. Um, if he's not ready, isn't like it's not for example, let's say like a like he's you know if he's injured he can't play. But that's the only reason he can pull out. Obviously, you know he has to come up yeah. with a story to not play. Yeah. And the doctors, but know. yeah, with the doctors know. So, like, you know, people do do that all the time in work. You know, if they just they just can't do it. So, uh, like, I just think he said, "I'm just not going to play because it doesn't work for me to play." If you're not, uh, if, just to go back to the, the idea of the collective pulling you through. If you are a little ropey, do you make it known, or is it something that you would kind of hide in a team environment? I don't think you make it known. No, like it's it's just something maybe that happens. Like you just uh, you're not right for the game. You know, it yeah. just can happen. You know. Um, you were talking about dying on your arse. <laughs> it's a rare thing, Jer. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> uh, no, but it's it, but like it's certainly in my game, and uh, it's probably the same in rugby. That those moments when it's going really badly, uh, you say it forces you to draw on your character. Well, I know, but it's what yeah. builds the character. Yeah. And you know, in my game, you have to be prepared to die mm. for it to write new things. You have to take risks. 
you have to go out there going this this could just be shocking <laughs> do you do those though in, in low risk environments or do you sometimes kind of like if you're previewing new material do you always try and do it in the comedy club for a fiver as opposed to in the laughter lounge or, or bigger <laughs> streets yeah um, yeah you try I try but like you try and do it as uh, like it, this probably leads into one of the things you were going to talk about advice one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given well, two pieces of advice I was given that really, I think, make sense in every mode of work you're in. Number one was do the work. There's no substitute for it. And the other one was just to to be present and not be thinking about what I might get and this, that and the other. That if you're there, you're actually there hmm. and focused on the task at hand, then that's when great things happen, if you're fully invested in at the time, rather than worrying about this, that and the other. I mean, I, I, would, I would, to answer your question, I would try stuff out everywhere because I think that people know when it's fresh. People know when you're being honest. And people can see lads on pitches who aren't trying hard enough, who aren't present and doing the work. I think you can spot lads and it annoys fans when they see lads out there who they feel like, He's not. He's not really putting it in, and it's probably what results in fans tweeting kind of abusive things and stuff like that. Yeah, um, there's a couple of things that come from that. Then, like Dennis, when you were playing, like were there aspects of your career that you developed or worked on in, in training that you kind of brought to games, or does it not really work like that? So, you know, Charlie talking about new material. Like, is there a is there a move that you try? Is there, it, are all those moves? team moves or is there something that you kind of think I'm going to try this this week uh, uh, well from a from a team perspective most of most of set piece stuff is team related stuff yeah um, but are the new skills uh, well like I think yeah like I think you, 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 you at times you say to yourself I'm going to try and work on this a little bit more and, and you know I'll try that out in a game or something like that but uh, you know, it's usually around specific skills like sort of kicking or yeah. or um, or um, yeah it's usually things like around like kicking or, or uh, maybe one or two other things you're going to try but it's not you know it's not it's not quite the same as uh, well, bringing in new material well, probably the fair <laughs> I'm going to bring in some new material this yeah week. yeah but probably a fair analogy would be bringing in a new player Trying them, do you try them out in the big stage, or do you try them out in you know a kind of a, a challenge match? Yeah, or something? that's I suppose an issue for a coach usually, and coaches will, will decide to you know that you have to kind of blood new players that way. So that's probably a little bit more. more you may play them off the bench for twenty minutes. Yeah, you know, exactly. Them in yeah, you might do 30. that. That's maybe yeah. a little bit more of a better parallel. Still Aston Villa 1, Chelsea 2. There's eight seconds left with the seven minutes of stoppage time at the end of the game at uh, Villa Park this afternoon. 53106 is the text number. Loads of response coming still to uh, the Alex Ferguson stuff. We have a few more topics to cover and we'll get to them after these. News Talk Sport, Saturday, in association with UPC. The fibre power network with 50 meg broadband as standard. On to Pomey, there's a player flat out of his feet. Here goes Dennis Hickey. He has a man behind him in the shape of Gordon Darcy. Hickey runs like Linford Christie. He has the port. Let's drop the numbers. Darcy, Hickey, Hickey for the corner. Dennis Hickey, he's in! It's a try! It's a try for Leicester! It's a try! 24 minutes played in the second half. A news talk clip favourite. I think uh, I think the commentators were definitely fans that day. Uh, back when news talk was a local radio station, Brendan Hennessy and Mick Quinn there. Um, that try, right? Charles talking about living in the moment. You get the ball inside your own twenty-two. 
you, do you decide straight away we're going for the corner or <laughs> I have no idea <laughs> I can't remember I can't remember to be honest is it just a cultural thing where you get the ball and you, you run like because that was when uh, Noxie was the backs coach I don't think it's a cultural thing that's a little bit too lofty it's just a you know it's a schoolboy thing you know is it yeah yeah, yeah just run as fast as you can <laughs> you know that's yeah. really what it's about trying to you know when you get the push you're supposed to try and score and just a lot of space which it doesn't is, matter where you are though that's the well not if there's no one in front of you you know or there's only a couple of people in front of you yeah um, and you just you get a sense of where the game's going at the time so uh, you know I, I, I don't it was maybe it was a culture of the team but it was also the culture of the players just to be able to see what was in front of them and play accordingly you know yeah um, not to be which is the way you're which I suppose is related to the way you're coached and not to be told when you're in your own 22 kick for <laughs> no but like no that doesn't happen like you know no one no one tells a team of professional sports people you know this is what you do and this exactly you know every single 99 100% of the time in this position you do that yeah. it's not just the way it, it just because it doesn't work well there's no point to, uh, there's no point paying players to you know play like the way they're supposed to play and then restricting them to only do certain they're not robots and so um, no it's just about putting a kind of a um, what's the word uh, you know a, a template the way you know the team should probably play uh, in certain parts of the position but you're, you're relying on the players to play yeah, yeah. I think Dennis has been a bit modest there, Ger. Like the thing that Dennis had was blistering speed, and that maybe was the reason for the try as well. I mean, people say such such as quick, and it's an awful throwaway line. There's only two people I work with, Shane Williams and Dennis, has got pure blistering speed, and that helped that situation too. That he's seen the try line, and nobody's going to catch him. They couldn't. Am I right in saying that was after you snapped your Achilles? Yeah, it was a couple of years after. Yeah, yeah, yeah a couple of years after. Yeah. Because you're not supposed to be able to be fast after you snap an Achilles. Well, it's funny, like, because sometimes actually those t- that that time away gets you back that speed. I actually that match was the first match I had played in in three months because I think in in the October or November prior to that, so that was that game was in. It would have been it was a quarter final, so March April time. March April, yeah. I didn't play for six weeks because I'd come back from a... I dislocated my knee uh, or my leg at the knee joint just before Christmas and I'd missed the Six Nations and there was a lull in game. So I hadn't played in, in in a long time leading into that game. But actually, like, and I remember we'd have spent a lot of time Mikey doing that. Sometimes a, an injury in the middle of the season is a bit of a godsend if you can time it right yeah. because you get... You don't get... Like usually when you're in the middle of a season, this for any sport, uh, when you're in competition, you're... Um, you know, you're going, especially in a nutritional game like rugby, you're going from game to game, week to week, you're getting bashed, bashed in training. You're never really 100% fit. Like the way the season is stacked, you pump, you put in a huge amount of work at the start of the year. It's like you build up a reservoir of work. Yeah. And just throughout the year, you try to tip it up, but ultimately it diminishes as the year goes on. Um, you try to just keep, basically keep the topped up. So if you've got a huge, if you have a gap in the middle of the season, you can actually really turn to your advantage if you do it properly. And that probably was a, you know, I was probably maybe a bit more fresh than some of the other guys who are playing. Yeah, getting injured for most sports during the middle of the season does help. You can top up your conditioning and then it, it, you're a lot fresher at the end of the year. Al are probably Brian this year with yeah. the Lions. I think with, with Leinster actually as well at the moment, I think Leinster are actually coming into their best part of the season now because for the first time all year I would say they have everyone playing yeah, pretty much, yeah. very no injuries and guys like Sean O'Brien and O'Brien and, and, and guys who were injured for a while take three, three or four games now they're 
like you're they're hitting their peak yeah they're hitting their peak so yeah, they really it actually worked quite well you know like they've got the t- hopefully three games ahead of them and they're, yeah. they're hitting, hitting their straps and yeah. like I think I looked at the team today it's an all Irish back row you know uh, the thing is that having that wee break which Sean O'Brien had Brian had yeah. Gordon Darcy had with the calf you know they're coming back they've got a bit of conditioning work done they've topped up the levels they would have built up during the pre-season and they're hitting the straps at the right time is there any way around it? Sorry, go on. Is there any around? Um, what? That kind of mid-season break, maybe? If you said, okay, from December to January, where it's four weeks, where well, there's no rugby, you're just going to do conditioning for four weeks, but then it wouldn't keep the sponsors happy and it'd, it'd lose any momentum you built up in the Heineken Cup and that sort of stuff. So I don't know, like, Gerald, I'd be interested to hear from your perspective, Gerald, you know, you see... When you see comedians go on the on the road, you see their schedule. They're, they're playing like you know, two months, three months back to back, just every single night with the odd gap in between. Like, what's the, what's the? There's no seasons, I presume, for comedy. So, is there any? Okay, I'm going to take three months off. Is it a set amount of time you should take off after something like that and just go back into it, or is it just it, dependent on who you are? The way, in the in a weird kind of way, the way it works in comedy is you don't take a break mm. until you can afford to take a break. <laughs> I, well, I've yet to take a holiday no. since I started comedy um, in 2007 was when I first really got into it. So the way it works with us is you keep going. Those guys that you'll see with a list of dates, they will take a break. Chris yeah. Rock works six months on, six months off, which is an amazing thing that he's earned yeah, through yeah, the excellence of what he does. And probably it is more a mental thing and it's quite like a season in rugby that you actually have to allow you try and use every minute that you have to to rest in in between. Uh, I don't I wanted to ask you this question which was the about the conditioning. You both talk about this. Uh like for guys like myself and Jer, getting to the gym is the biggest pain in the arse like imaginable. It's so hard to do it, particularly with kids, where you're just trying to get in there to make it is it that much of a pain in the arse for you guys does it, does it require that level when you're of, playing uh, yeah when you're playing like it must be oh, a no pain. not at all it's your job but it's a good job it's pretty it's pretty handy like I'm, you know it's you your day starts instead of if you're working in the bank or you're working in a, in a company instead of at your desk at nine you're, you get your schedule it's got, you're in the gym from this time to that time and it's just part of your day you know just, I think so. the secret for you guys though is and it's not maybe part of your daily lifestyle is to set something up at home get, get a bit of space at home it doesn't need to be a sexy gym with all lights flashing and bells ringing get in some a barbell some weights and do it in the corner of a room you don't need a big space to have mm. a conditioning program mm. get a couple of breeze blocks your muscles doesn't know what it's lifting it just knows as a result there's a great okay. book out actually that says you can use if you have two babies that you can bench press the two babies <laughs> absolutely the muscles don't know it's babies you're bench pressing yeah. you know, it's, just, it's just a weight of resistance yeah, you know? the social services will find out that <laughs> yeah. uh, the um, you know, like it, it's but you know go, sitting now on the other side of the table for you know for want of a better expression having to try and go to work and go to the gym you know mm. I can understand why it's you know I can understand it's, it's difficult because it's for nothing you're training for nothing you just got to build like uh, you just build it into your day like yeah. I go before to, before mm. I go to work I only work out for 20 minutes a day that's it that's it that's it how do you do in that 20 minutes what what do you do in that 20 uh, minutes you go to the gym maybe three days a week and I go for a run once a week so four days a week but I'm, I'm going to start at Quarter to seven, and I'm out at the gym at twenty, like ten past, quarter past. That's it. You got to do part of your routine, though. No, it's got to be part of it's your part routine. routine. Yeah. It's part of my day, you know. Yeah. And I go on certain days. I do different things, and that's it. Because I don't. I'm the type of person who probably wouldn't do it if it was in my house. Mm. But I know other guys would be. And the other thing I couldn't do. I'm not the type of guy who could go after work. Right. I just wouldn't go. 
So that's just what works for me, you know. Yeah. Have you seen players that hate it? Oh yeah, loads of guys hate it, but it's very hard to stop doing. You know, like all the guys who would say they've hated or wouldn't wouldn't have liked it. People still, it's it's. I've actually there's been a. I would have noticed a big difference between when I started playing the game. Had just gone professional, so I was one of the first guys. So there was a lot of guys who would have been amateurs, um, who then overnight became professionals, but but their mind wasn't perfect. You know, yeah. you know, didn't necessarily um, weren't professional in mind. So naturally, it followed when they finished. They probably were more of their amateur self than they were, and I meet some of them, and some of them are in better shape than others. But I've been actually surprised. Most of the guys I played with, and even some unlikely guys that you would have thought, you know, as soon as they finished. You know that guy's got a balloon. Mm. They just haven't because they just have this. It's in their head to keep doing it. And the the other advantage they have, like I I would have that advantage as well as I can go into the gym and get a lot done in twenty minutes because I know what I'm doing. Mm. And not, I don't spend any time walking around or looking at the TV monitors or or uh, chatting to somebody or you know thinking I'm doing something that I'm not. So you do actually have a skill set to be able to go in, make it effective, and go out. And and that's that's obviously a big advantage for for, for over people who. You know, the gym is a maze and it's a challenge and they feel they should go, but they don't really want to be there. Mm. Or what to do with all those crazy machines when you get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <This is> very... <laughs> I like the way you blame the kids, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah it's, it's my kids' fault. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned talking about advice. I want to play you a clip. Here's Pat Nevin. We had him on during the week about the best bit of advice that he ever got. He's the only player I ever played with my whole career where what you did is you didn't look up. You just put the ball in the correct area and he was there. He was always, always, always there. And also, a guy who gave me a piece of advice once, I was generally a 10 goals a season sort of player, but I'd hopefully create quite a lot more. I asked Aldo for a bit of advice, and I said, look, how come you always score about 40 goals every season? And he said, well, just go where the defenders aren't. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a wee bit more complicated than that. Well, amazingly, that season I scored 19 goals just by going, and it was amazing. Simple little thing, and I just gutted I never met him 10 years earlier. It'd have been great. What a difference that'd have made. Yeah, Pat and Evan talking at ROB during the week about John Aldridge. Um, the the good bits of advice that you got when you got them, were you ready, willing, and able to take them? Yeah, well, Jerry Seinfeld is the one who said, do the work, because he says there's all these conventions and classes for comedians to take and how to, you know, and the same for any sport. Is like, how can I, what's the shortcut to success? <laughs> there's no shortcut. Do the work. The question is knowing what's the best work to do like you say mm. you know what to do with that 20 minutes in the gym there's a lot of people doing a lot of work that's wasted and just a waste of time do the right work is the best advice I think anyone will ever get yeah Mike yeah I think I'm quite fortunate that I've worked cr- across a wide range of sports rugby league rugby and soccer boxing international rules GA and no matter who I work with I always listen to the coach and they always give you some bit of advice that is useful uh, probably in soccer it probably taught me what not to do rather than what to do and that's 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 half the battle knowing what not to do what, what doesn't work you know yeah. you worked with Hull I worked with Hull City for three years yeah and that this, we were bo- third and bottom in Division 3 we were struggling side uh, probably wasn't a great setup at the time you know but a lot of the training modalities was very very dated and out of touch so I learned a lot of what not to do when I was with Hull you know and we sort of took that forward a bit in, in sort of my last year there and things uh, obviously picked up there at Hull you know when you say what not to do was it how to treat the players or <coughs> how to treat the players but also how 
the, the way they trained. I mean, they didn't train very specific to what they did in the game. Uh, there was a lot of like long, slow running in football at the time that doesn't develop explosive players. A lot of injuries because they didn't do much recovery. It was basically play, get a shower, jump in the car, go to the pub. Mm. You know, my first away game, uh, we played Rotherham and we left at 10 o'clock. No food before the game, no food after the game. Stopped at a service station and the boys had pies. The recovery so there you go so <laughs> big massive learning curve for me haven't come from rugby league and haven't worked out in the states you know yeah all right and was there one bit of advice that sticks out from all that yeah uh the best bit of advice is that no matter how hard you train unless you have the players doesn't make a blame bit of difference right okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of grim for all those uh, coaches out there i think uh, if i if i'm just that bit more if i'm better dennis what about you were you open to advice throughout your career or does there come a period where you're more or less open no i think um I think there's a few things. The best advice you can get is from older players. Um, but so I don't think I ever got a bit of advice from another player that I didn't immediately take on board and and believe it to be a hundred percent both sincere and accurate and something I should do. The flip side of that is I think players they especially experienced players they start having an understanding of what works for them. And rugby is such a diverse sport in terms of the makeup of the team. Guys of different sizes and ages and, and skill sets. And, you know, what you're supposed to be able to do is very different from what I'm supposed to be able to do. So mm. there's, there is an element of stuff that's not particularly transferable. Um, and guys, I think, are, are also they're aware of the fact that, okay, this works for me. It mightn't work for that person. So, you know, everyone's got to sort of plot their own course. Yeah. So that makes, I think, the advice that you do get from players all the more um relevant because players they don't particularly stick their neck into other people's players and say, other players and say you should do this or you should do that you're not doing this there's a bit of there's a culture of not really doing that so if if a player actually comes out and says this and maybe you should try that I, I don't think that ever happened to me where I didn't go okay I, I obviously clearly need to do that and uh, I'm going to do it immediately and were you always open to that because oh, yeah like again it, it depends who's come, who it comes from but the way the culture of the team would evolve is that somebody is not going to give somebody else a piece of advice unless they're in a position to do so. Yeah. Uh, because... No one's coming in and shouting the odds. No one's no one's coming into the team and saying, like, who hasn't established themselves. Uh, and I've heard of this, you know, even... I heard this recently enough where a guy's come into a, come into a squad and, um, you know, start shouting his mouth off. Very quickly, senior players or, or any players would take them aside and say, listen, you just haven't earned that yet. Like, you know, just keep your mouth shut and do your own job. Mm. You know, uh, we listen to this guy because he's been here for X amount of years, but he's also achieved the following. You know, until you can, until you can point to that, uh, you're not in a position to give advice. And that's just a culture of the team that most teams, it just evolves where young players just <laughs> would never dream of giving older players advice. Mm. Um, uh, on a kind of a casual basis, you know, take them aside, you know. It strikes me that um, Jerry Seinfeld is probably a good one to be able to take advice from, but uh, yeah. other other comedians who are on the same kind of circuit, I, I suspect maybe you wouldn't be so quick to take yeah. advice. I don't know. Or uh, would they offer any? I don't know, because it's Jerry Seinfeld's totally removed from the blood, sweat and toil that goes into what I was describing earlier yeah. of being on the road and just driving your Honda Accord up and down England yeah. every night of the week. He's made so 440 million from um, Seinfeld. Seinfeld alone. Reruns. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but he. But then on the other hand, here's a guy who's still gigging every 
weekend. He he's it's maybe Caesar's Palace, but he his work ethic is better than anybody's in the world. I do take advice from comics that are out out there at the chalk face because they do know that better than anyone. And the challenges that we face are a lot different to the ones that uh, say Seinfeld faced or a rugby player who wasn't professional but, faced. But even guys like Seinfeld, I've seen interviews with him where you know the guys he referenced are the were the hardest working guys. Like Bill Cosby mm. always talks about Bill Cosby going on for three hours, yeah. three and a half hours. You know that's what you need to do. He was untouchable. So you, know, you always have someone to look up to. It's just True. you know I think one of the things about it. You know, one of the 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 a key skill is to be able to identify. You get loads of advice from people throughout your career, as in any career actually, but in professional sport, loads of people will give you advice, and a lot of it well-meaning. But to be able to identify maybe two or three people that, when things are really bad or you really need to change it, you're not seasons going well, you're not playing well, um, where you can get really good sound advice. Uh, incredible advice yeah. and so often that actually could eliminate by the way your family for example because or your your girlfriend or your wife whatever that is because you know with the best will in the world they can only they can potentially be blinkered by the fact that you know you're related to them or they're they care so much about you yeah. that they can only give you a certain type of advice so to be able to identify two or three people who can give you strong advice but aren't necessarily in that category is also uh, a very important thing to be able to do you um, identified players specifically so rather than coaches or coaching staff or old no not or necessarily kind of players no like any of the players I would have played with certainly the guys I played with a long time if they had given me any advice that's what I was referring to earlier on yeah. you know I would take as exactly 100% face value but I'm talking actually outside the team environment so sometimes you need to be able to step away from the team environment uh, and you know can you identify two or three people who know what they're talking about um, know you well enough as well as the other thing like they have to be able to they have to understand who you are and you know maybe have known you for a long time understand your character what to say what not to say understand as well what you respond to yeah um, and you know it's really only going to be two or three people I was going to say not not very easy to find that no and and it shouldn't be you shouldn't have ten people to be able to tell you what to do because yeah. you know it's impossible uh, we're nearly out of time Jonathan You've got some gigs coming up? Yep, I'll be all around Dublin this this week and I'm in the Laughter Lounge tonight. So if you want to hear me on stage giving out about Alex Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to pay to, pay yeah. to hear you give out about it's the privilege. Yeah. All the details on jigsaw.com? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good place to go. Yeah, that's cool. My all right, my thanks to uh, Dennis Hickey, to Mike McGarren and to Jarlis Regan for uh, joining us on our panel this afternoon. We've got to take a quick break. Back after these. News Talk Sport, Saturday, in association with UPC, the fibre power network with true on-demand TV.